First, though, as you've been hearing in the news, some leaked documents they were leaked to Post Media News. They show a whole lot more information of uh, about COVID-19, about testing, about cases, about clusters, about different neighborhoods in this province. Uh, the very type of information that a lot of journalists and reporters have been asking for, uh, but have not been given. Well, these documents were leaked. And to talk more about what we now know is Caroline Colain, SFU professor and Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hello. Uh, Can you talk a bit? I know uh, you were quoted in the Vancouver Sun article. I don't know how much you've gone through uh, these documents. Uh, I know, uh, I think about 45 pages each. What are your thoughts on the fact that this information exists, but it wasn't being shared? Yeah, so I think we shouldn't be too surprised that public health has data they don't share. You know, we know that public health has data about individuals and their health records, and we know that's not going to be shared, and we don't want it to be shared. I think it raises a question about what the public wants to see, how data stewardship works, what's kind of held in health authorities, what's held at, at BCCDC, who has a jurisdiction to decide to share the data And also, I think it brings up important conversations about what some of the benefits of sharing more data would be for the public and for the the scientific community. Right. And and I'm glad you brought that up. You're right, because nobody's asking that personal health information be shared. But a lot of comparison has been made that if we look at some health authorities, say in Ontario, uh, this type of information is shared when we're talking about specific neighborhoods, we're talking about positivity rates, and that that information can, in fact, help people, help individuals uh, better uh, know the risk or better know how to respond. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that those data have been helpful in the response in a few ways in Ontario. I think it did highlight some of the disproportionate burden the pandemic has had in neighborhoods where there are a lot of people who can't work from home and who have to have contact at work, so essential workers. And I think that helped thinking about vaccine prioritization, which has also been a theme here in B.C., And then they had data on vaccine uptake by region, and they were finding that the vaccines were not getting to where they were really most needed. So if we can act on those data to improve things, of course, that's a huge benefit for sharing it. You know, another benefit to sharing it is that these data are complex and the pandemic is complex, and it really does take a whole society to fight a pandemic like this. And so if people can make better decisions, and that's individuals, but also community leaders, faith leaders, uh, GPs, nurses, healthcare, you know, if they would have data on vaccine uptake or transmission in their region, they might be able to affect that by urging people to get vaccinated or not hosting events or urging people to be cautious or, or by taking other actions. So I think those are definitely some of the benefits we would hope to see from sharing those kind of geographically resolved data. Uh, do you think there is any negative side in sharing more information? So there can be. Um, for example, the health authorities themselves would be the ones who would okay, you know, what level of aggregation they need to, to sort of avoid having so few cases that it might become identifiable. And so if that's the case, uh, that's a risk. Another risk is, you know, for example, suppose you had a high positivity but that in a region, but it was so small that that was just they did six tests and four of them were positive. That might mean actually really low case numbers, but the positivity would look out of this world. That's not a bad sign. So like some of the complexities of how this might change, maybe the week after they did 12 cases and only two of them were positive. Who knows? So, you know, interpreting that and how it changes week to week might be confusing. Sometimes it might might lead to 
kinds of questions. But, you know, I would hope that we would be able to be competent communicators and and kind of get those data out to the public in a way that is consistent enough that wouldn't that that wouldn't happen. Uh, right, because even looking at one of the maps that was in the the leaked documents, if you're just glancing at it, you would think uh, the reds there's a red zone kind of in the northeast corner of BC, and if you just glanced at it, you would think, oh my goodness, something's gone horribly wrong in this part of the province. It's off the charts because of the the looking at it, it would say the increase in positive testing. But you're right, it could be that it went from two cases to four cases, which would be a 100% increase, but it doesn't mean that things are out of control. Right, exactly. It's that sort of thing that I think they're a little cautious around, you know, wanting to put things in the right context, um, you know, for before choosing to send it out. And that's something where, you know, in that example, Northern Health Authority would probably be the, the ones who would okay releasing it. So that's not the case that you know, someone, one person is kind of sitting in the government thinking, ha ha, like, what am I going to do with releasing the data? I think it, it is a, a bit more complex. But, you know, of course, as a someone who would use data and be a, a consumer of data, it's also easy for me to see some of the advantages to me and to my scientific community of sharing the data. And it can be a little harder to see some of the risks. So, But I hope that we could manage, I do think we could manage those risks. And the pandemic has been a time when, the public has become very savvy about the science and everyone's talking about herd immunity and flattening the curve and R and mRNA vaccines and efficacy and all these things. So I do think, you know, we could trust our public and we already trust our public to do the right thing. We ask them to be calm, be kind and be safe. We have a pandemic response that is built on public trust. And I think the public, if they see the rationale for why decisions are made, they would understand and that would help them to make good decisions too and help them to trust the rationale behind those measures. Uh, because something else that was announced earlier today as well, Vancouver Coastal Health uh, now saying that people 30 plus in what they're describing as hot spots can go ahead and book their vaccination uh, appointments. And and when you look at the list, it's places like Kensington, Renfrew, Collingwood, Sunset, Killarney, Hastings, Sunrise, Grandview, Woodland, uh, Victoria. A Fraser View, a Cedar Cottage, and then up the Cedar Sky as well. But if you look at those neighborhoods, I mean, you don't probably need the leaked documents to connect the dots that these are where we're seeing the high number of cases. What would the harm have been leading up to this, letting people know in these neighborhoods we're seeing spikes? Right. So benefits, of course, if people living in these neighborhoods think, oh, wow, that means I should really go now for my vaccine. I shouldn't wait. That's great. That's a great impact. What would be the harm? I guess one issue is, and maybe more, you could say more data release would help with this, but where people live isn't necessarily where they got COVID. So if if people, if there's an outbreak at a meat processing plant in Alberta or whatever, the, the site of transmission isn't necessarily the residence where people are. So you can have kind of, oh, don't go there. They have COVID in that neighborhood, but not not affiliated with community transmission at all, just because you know, 20 people from the factory lived in this neighborhood. So I think the risks can be, you know, around not only just private information, but sometimes around like not transmission versus residential address. Or, you know, what are we saying? How are people going to use those data? But on, you know, on balance, I would say people are making decisions. And if they have good information, they will hopefully be able to make good decisions.
exactly. Uh, Caroline, I just wanted to ask you, because last time we talked, uh, we were talking also about the modeling and about getting to a place of herd immunity. And, and you talked about how because there are groups of people who either will not or cannot be vaccinated, that's what's going to really slow us down. Uh, with the, at least one of the vaccine manufacturers opening it up to uh, people age 12 plus, do you think that's going to have a big impact on getting us to herd immunity? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we have to make guesses when we think about how much vaccine coverage we have to get to be at a place of herd immunity. And some people are even saying, you know, herd immunity is impossible. It doesn't exist. I think in a practical sense, it really does exist. And that means, you know, we can get enough people vaccinated that vaccination lets us return to mostly normal life. So when we make those guesses, we find that vaccinating that age group is hugely important. It kind of makes the difference between mostly a return to mostly normal life on the best guesses we can make and and having a, a larger wave if we are not able to, to do that. So I'm really hopeful that that is going to happen, that we will reach really high coverage levels in the rest of the community. And that'll just put us in a hugely good position to reopen to more normal life. All right, we'll leave it there. Caroline Colane, thanks so much once again for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for for being with us. Well, the latest employment data is showing the number of people looking for work in this country jumped last month to 8.1%, up from 7.5% in March. Statistics Canada saying uh, 207,000 jobs disappeared in April, mainly because of renewed public health restrictions as the pandemic did and is flaring up in several places. Uh, Unemployment climbed in BC as well. Stats Canada saying BC's jobless rate now stands at 7.1%. That's up from 6.9% in March. 43,000 jobs lost in this province. Let's bring in Ravi Kalan, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So a loss of jobs. This is the first time I think we've seen an employment decline in several months. Do do we uh, chalk it up to the circuit breaker that's in effect, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're right, Jill. We we saw 11 straight months of job gains here in British Columbia, and this is the first month uh, since the pandemic started where we've seen a drop, but it's not surprising. I mean, when uh, the circuit breaker was announced, we, we knew there would be impacts. You know, when you... Uh, you know, not allow uh, indoor dining and, and restrict travel and, and all the measures that were put in place, we knew it would have an impact and, uh, and uh, 43,000, you know, lost jobs, uh, mostly part-time, um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it still has an impact. Uh, and when we t- take a look at those jobs as well, are, are we talking about uh, jobs in hospitality, jobs uh, in, in various industries, or is there one particular area that we're looking at that saw the bulk of the, the 43,000 jobs lost? Yeah, we, uh, the, again, no surprise. Uh, with the circuit breaker announcements, most of the job losses we've seen are you know tourism and hospitality uh, related. Uh, so whether it's accommodation or food services, uh, they've seen they've seen an impact. And uh, again, we've known from the beginning that uh, healthy BC and uh, healthy economy go hand in hand. And so when the case count goes up, uh, you know we had to take the steps uh, to put the circuit breaker in place, uh, and and it's worked. I mean, you know we've seen case counts come down and. And now it's a matter of uh, getting people registered and and getting people vaccinated so that we can start seeing the uh, economy open up again. Uh, What's happening then as far as do you know how many businesses have actually accessed uh, the circuit breaker relief fund or have been given money from that fund? 
Yeah, we've got about $34 million. Uh, you know, we announced that program uh, three weeks ago. We launched it, and uh, $34 million has gone out. Uh, and we've got thousands of applications that are just uh, going through right now. Uh, again, very easy for businesses to apply. Uh, we've been turning around fairly quickly. And, and if there's any businesses out there, uh, the money is still available. And we encourage them to apply. Uh, is it going smoother then? I mean, it seems to be. Uh, there was uh, there were many businesses, many were contacting us uh, earlier in the, the bigger fund, the grant money that, that uh, business owners could apply for, saying that it was extremely difficult and they were having trouble accessing it. Has it been streamlined? Do you think that it is working better? Well, we have two funds. Uh, you know, we have the highest per capita supports for people and businesses in the country. And we have the Small Business Recovery Grant Program, which is over $300 million fund. Uh, and we're, uh, you know, we're about $165 million that's gone out on that. And the circuit breaker was another $125 million fund uh, that was announced just three weeks ago. So businesses can apply for both. Uh, and, and as I highlighted, that uh, $34 million has already gone out on that. And we're getting applications still coming in. Uh, how do you know that BC, uh, compared to the other provinces, where are you getting the figures that it has the highest per capita spending when it comes to the relief grants? Uh, well, there's a report that was done by the CCPA that's been cited uh, many times, uh, and it broke down the dollars invested from every province. It shows that BC has put considerably more dollars than other jurisdictions. Even if you look at the small and medium-sized business recovery grant, if you look at per capita size between us uh, and Ontario and Alberta, uh, ours is the, the biggest fund. We even had a, um, a program uh, for businesses to pivot and transition on with a launch online to you know, set up e-commerce. Uh, same size a budget for Ontario, and Ontario is three times the size. So we're proud of that. And, uh, and again, we're going to continue to find ways to support businesses through this very challenging time. Uh, what do you say to people working in uh, specifically in hotels? Uh, we, we have some workers even at, at one of the quarantine hotels right now locked out. Uh, that seems to be one of the more extreme cases. Uh, but hotel workers that have seen, if they still have jobs, have seen huge uh, decreases in their hours and really don't see any relief, don't see any coming back anytime soon. Well, it's hard, uh, and there's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, you know, there's uh, some sectors, again, uh, whether you're in the hotel sector or in the restaurant sector, uh, we've seen some job losses, of course, but we've also seen, as you've highlighted, reduced hours. And, and the part of the, the dollars that we've uh, allocated is for businesses to keep employees on. Uh, we heard that around clear, clear from uh, many in the business community that they wanted to use the dollars. They wanted the flexibility to keep employees because they know they're going to need these folks for when we get out uh, into better times. And, and so we built that flexibility. And of course, workers that uh, have lost their employment have access to the federal expanded EI program and also the Canadian uh, Recovery Benefit Program. Again, supports are there. And uh, again, if people get vaccinated, hopefully we'll see better days ahead. Uh, what do you say to, to younger people? I mean, this is the group uh, where uh, the premier took a lot of flack for saying, uh, don't blow it for us. Uh, we now have a whole group of people, and I would say from 18 to 29, maybe even older, who were maybe depending on summer jobs. They were looking forward to working at the PE. That's uh, over. That's not going to happen this year. Uh, looking at other summer jobs that simply don't exist right now. What do you say to people that are in that situation that are not going to make any income this summer? Well, we, uh, the Premier actually just two weeks ago announced uh, a new program uh, for youth. Uh, it's the Future Leaders Program, and now it's $45 million just for youth employment. So that's hiring young people to 
work in our parks because we know we need to do some work there, uh, cleaning our oceans, and uh, over uh, 1,200 just tech-related jobs as well. So we've uh, put the dollars in place so that we can get more youth employment because it's going to be hard. Uh, you know, young people uh, are disproportionately impacted by lost hours and, uh, and, and lost employment. And, and we're hoping those dollars go a long way. Uh, do you think that's enough, though, when you look at uh, some of the numbers are showing that youth unemployment is much higher than the employment rate, that it could be as high as around 11, 11, between 11 and 12 percent? Yeah, well, we're seeing uh, numbers uh, that are very high with Indigenous communities as well. And and, uh, and we, we put these programs in place, the dollars in place. And if we feel like we need more, we do have money and contingencies that we put aside to do that. Again, our number one goal right now is stabilize, uh, get those numbers down, the, uh, um, the case count numbers down. And again, encouraging people to please get vaccinated as soon as they can so that we can start opening the economy up and some of those employment opportunities uh, can be created for our young folks and for anyone that's been uh, impacted. Uh, are there certain numbers that uh, you have that are the, the goalposts or the goals as far as reopening the economy, rebuilding the economy? Are those in place? Uh, is there a roadmap going forward? Yeah, and I just I think it's important to highlight, Jill, that uh, not all sectors of our economy are struggling. Uh, there are some sectors that are doing very well. BC right now has 99.1% of job recovery rate from the worst time of the pandemic. And so although we've seen some job losses in tourism and hospitality, we've seen considerable uh, increase in employment in our resource sector, in our tech sector. Uh, We just had the icebreaker announced uh, yesterday by the federal government. Microsoft announced uh, thousands of jobs. Amazon, Best Buy is moving their headquarters here. So we're seeing opportunities, but we have, of course, until we can start to travel and uh, and open up, uh, some of our sectors are going to continue to struggle. Uh, when you we talk about Amazon as well, and people see that as a good thing, uh, bringing uh, opening up and jobs directly related with Amazon, is it a bit of a mixed message, though, as far as, on the other hand, we're also telling people, please buy local, please support your local businesses, uh, don't go to places like Amazon? Well, uh, the Amazon jobs are uh, engineering jobs and and various jobs in their head office. Uh, But, of course, uh, it's not a mixed message because the employment is still happening. But you can still encourage people to buy local and shop local. I prefer to shop local. I go to the local stocks in my neighborhood. Uh, Those businesses need us now. But it's still uh, employment that is coming to the province and people are going to get hired. All right. Uh, Ravi Kalam, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems like quite a while ago, I guess it was uh, really, uh, relatively speaking, when we had Maureen McGrath on the show, and she, as you would know, is the host of the Sunday Night Health Show. We brought her on a few months ago uh, to talk about needle phobia, the fact that, well, I don't know many people, if any, that look forward to getting vaccinations or needles. Uh, A lot of people really, really dislike it and actually have a phobia. And Maureen talked about how, yes, it is a real thing. Uh, I know people have been asking that news stations television stations stop showing all the footage of needles going into arms because it's freaking people out and we're going to talk a little bit more about that with this show's producer Ben Dooley who is on the line with us now Ben good afternoon to you good afternoon Jill 
All right. Just before we get to that, though, I have to ask you, because it came up this morning. I was on my way into work for whatever reason. Uh, I, I usually walk to work, but if I'm running a bit late, I'll hop on the bus. So I thought, OK, I'll just do that this morning. For whatever reason, the bus never came. Uh, so I texted you and said, hey, Ben, I'm running behind. Not my fault. Uh, I'm, I'm stuck now. I have to wait. Uh, hopefully the bus shows up soon. Your response was uh, very emphatically, so glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. Uh, how are things going working at home? Uh, you know what? Things are going great. I am not ashamed to admit that uh, my uh, routine now is to just get out of bed, uh, you know, minutes before I have to have to be at work and uh, and then just uh, go to my desk. And it's about uh, two feet from my bed uh, to my desk uh, right now. So I do not have to... Uh, commute very far at all anymore. That's a pretty short, that might be uh, in the top 10 of the world's shortest commutes. Yeah, yeah, so no uh, no broken elevators, uh, no hills, nothing, uh, nothing getting in my way anymore. All right, that is uh, great news. Uh, now let's talk about this because uh, you and I have talked about vaccinations and needles and such and the fact that you, I think, would put yourself in the camp of not a fan of getting uh, vaccinations. But you also have a different perspective in that you've been able to get them a little differently in the past. Yeah, so uh, when I was a kid, I was poked and prodded with so many needles uh, that that I I lost count, uh, and I just hated uh, the process. It's it was just painful, and uh, you know sometimes I'd I'd have a a nurse who who didn't uh, didn't uh, know how to uh, to uh, to execute the needle uh, properly, and so. A few years back, a a family doctor of mine saw that you know I just hated needles, and uh, and it was preventing me from from getting you know blood work done, from uh, getting my annual flu shot. That that he suggested uh, having it uh, done in my thigh, uh, because uh, as, as I've uh, spoken about on the show before, I'm a paraplegic, so I I don't have any feeling uh, below the waist. And so that was actually, you know, a great solution because I can go get the needle uh, in my thigh and then not feel a thing. And that was uh, a great way to to overcome my, my fear of needles. Uh, does it, so when the doctor suggested that, uh, did, did you kind of shake your head and say, why, why are we just talking about this now? Could this not have been something uh, we've been doing all along? That that was exactly uh, my reaction because uh, you know it's not a new thing. I I've been uh, I've been paralyzed my my whole life and and it I've always just hated needles and and it took you know a lot longer than it it should have to to come up with uh, that suggestion. All right. So this the reason we're talking about this now as well is it's come to light that some people, uh, again, who would put themselves in the camp of really not liking needles to the point of perhaps having a needle phobia uh, are questioning if you really need to get the COVID-19 vaccine in your arm or could you get it in, say, your thigh instead? Now, when you got your COVID-19 vaccine, did you have that conversation with the healthcare provider? Uh, honestly, you know what? I was so overcome with euphoria about 
about it finally being my turn to get the shot that, that I didn't even, uh, you know, think to, to ask, uh, the, the healthcare, uh, provider because, you know, it, it all happened so fast. I was, the, the shot was in my arm before, <laughs> before I really even had a chance to, to talk to the healthcare provider. And, and the funny thing about it was, you know, the, the needle, I, I didn't even notice that the needle was, was in my arm and, and the, the nurse that uh, administered the, the shot, uh, said to me that, you know, you're, you're done here. And it was, was over. And I couldn't believe how easy and seamless it was to, to get it done in, in my arm. Hmm. That's pretty amazing that somebody that you in the past have had the option of getting it painlessly in the thigh, that it, that it was so slick that that didn't even come up as an issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was such a, a slick process that, uh, that I, I didn't even think to uh, uh, get it done in, in my uh, thigh. But uh, but maybe when uh, I, I go back for for the second dose, I, I might try to, to get it done. Uh, done in my thigh because uh not, not everyone is is as good as uh, the nurse that, that i had so i might not uh, be so so lucky the next time around <laughs> very very true mm-hmm. um i know there there can be some issues and and it's been brought up as well the reason that it goes that we get vaccinated in our arms is that's kind of the perfect spot for it as far as it has to go uh, into the muscle uh, so it's easy enough to do that it's accessible uh, in the upper arm area um that there can be some issues if, if somebody has uh, other issues and that's why they might go to the thigh as a secondary site H- have doctors ever told you that okay we'll do this in the thigh but it's not the preferred area oh yeah it's it's definitely um you know a special accommodation that they're making because i am just so deathly uh afraid of needles uh that it's it's definitely something that uh, you know they, they make me aware that uh, that they don't do this for everyone and it's only in uh really special uh circumstances that they'd even consider uh doing something like that so bottom line, if somebody is, is hearing this or thinking, oh, I might want to consider that best thing then uh, to talk to the healthcare provider. If you have a doctor, talk to your doctor and see if, if that accommodation, uh, if it's worth having that accommodation made for you. Yeah, exactly. You know, just just to have that conversation, uh, you know, if you're somebody that uh, that is uh, definitely afraid of, of needles uh, and, and you're a paraplegic and, and that's something that that would work for you, it's definitely... Uh, you know, worth having that conversation just to see if if it is an option for you. I think you're on to something, though, when you're talking about how, in this case, when you got your shot, it was uh, the person who did it was so quick. And, and and I think that's true. If if you can get a needle, get a shot, and it's so fast that you don't actually even notice it, that is the, the sign of it. It's an art form. And my mother was a registered nurse. Uh, she claimed that she was extremely good at this. I once let her give me a shot, and it was the most painful shot I've ever had in my life. And I told her so. You are not the best person at this. Uh, what it turns out, she was very good at blood draws. Uh, she was very good at she could find the vein in someone's arm and she could make that painless, which is also an art form. But you're right. You need, uh, it's it's not everybody is the same when it comes to administering the needle. When I got my COVID shot, I, I told the nurse too, because I, I tend to sometimes pass out. I don't mean to. It's an involuntary reaction. I told her that and she, she said, okay, I'm really good at this, but what Whatever you do, do not move. 
which then made me even more frightened and freaked out. I thought, oh, God, oh no, am I going to move? Am I going to make it worse? Um, I'm guessing you've had some of that kind of uh, uh, fear leading up to the shot in the past as well. Yeah, I, I think what what the key um, for me with the the COVID um, shot is because you know it was it was probably five minutes from the time that I arrived at the vaccination t- uh, site to the time the needle was in my arm. I didn't really have a lot of time to think about the fact that I was scared about getting the needle. So I think that that uh, certainly plays a part in it as well. As sometimes, uh, you know, we we have uh, a tendency as as humans do to you know get anxious about things or to kind of psych ourselves out. And I think that that uh, certainly adds to uh, the the experience. That is very, very true. All right, Ben, thanks so much for jumping on, uh, coming on the show and talking about this uh, today. We will talk to you later. Thanks so much, Jill. All right, we were just talking with show producer Ben Dooley about getting a vaccination shot. He, in the past, because he is a paraplegic, a doctor once said, hey, we can do this in your thigh. You won't feel it and was able to do that. Didn't do that for COVID-19, though. And uh, we wanted to talk about that today because some people have been raising that question. Do you have to get the shot in your arm? For the most part, yes, that is the preferred uh, space, a part of your body. Uh, Let's see what you've been saying on the phone lines, though. I put the call out do you have a way of of dealing with that fear of needles or are you a healthcare provider that does immunization and what is your kind of mo uh, dealing with people who are really nervous uh, about that let's go to uh, lavette in surrey good afternoon hi hi what what are your thoughts on this well i'm one of those uh that has a major phobia or i don't know i mean my, my mind just goes crazy and uh i often do faint um, I'm getting my COVID shot tomorrow, so I am anxious, but I am going to try Emla cream, which is supposed to uh, numb the skin area, so I'm hoping it'll help. It works great for blood work, so I'm hoping it'll work for the shot. I think it, it will. I have a friend who uses Emla for her kids because her kids are anxious, and she says it really does make a difference. Yeah, I couldn't even feel it the first time I used it for blood work. My husband said, uh, you didn't even you know, react. I said, I didn't feel it, so I'm <gasps> really <great>. hoping... <laughs> Because, yeah, I'm one of those. I was a preemie and probably got lots of pokes and prods, too. Um, And one doctor said, that's probably why my skin is so sensitive, because I can't handle a lot of external pain, but internally, yeah, a lot. Hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, congratulations on that. I'm sure it's going to be great. You won't feel a thing. And uh, congrats on getting the shot tomorrow. Well, thanks. I'm not sure I'm feeling congratulated. I'll be glad when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. You'll be fine. I, I, I'm sure of it. Uh, Lavette, thanks for the call. Uh, let's uh, appreciate you giving us a call on that. Uh, let's continue uh, on down the uh, phone line. And Chris is on the line. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I don't know when I lost my fear of uh, needles, but I get IMS done twice a week from physio. I don't know if you know what that is. Yes, I tried it once, but my fear of needles made it. I couldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, they don't recommend it if you're that scared of it. Um, What I have found is a lot of times when I get a shot, it's so quick, it doesn't even hurt. But when I got my COVID, it was a little different. I don't know why. Was it, it because they didn't know how to do it properly or what? But I felt it. But I wasn't scared of it, so I don't know. My fear is giving injections. Mm, yes. Because I don't want to hurt the person, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, are you, you know, and then when they do kind of go, well, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what how I am. But, oh. yeah.
Yeah, I got my two COVID injections, and so I'm done for now. Oh wow! All right. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, because I work in long term care. Okay. Yeah, that's why. All right. Chris, yeah. thanks for calling. Appreciate your call. Yeah, sometimes it's the lead up that can be worse than the actual few seconds of the shot. I felt the COVID shot too, but again, it was over so quickly. I had a really good healthcare provider. Pete in Vancouver, what are your thoughts on this? Hi, I don't personally have a problem with needles myself, but what some people might want to consider is checking out the Canadian Society of Clinical Hypnosis, BC branch, uh, and getting hypnotized for needle phobia. Uh, you can check it out, hypnosis.bc.ca, because it is a phobia, right? Mm-hmm. So that might be uh, one way to deal with it. Uh, I got my shot, and, you know, it, it hurt less than the flu, right? Like, I was, I was surprised. I thought it'd be worse. But, uh, yeah, you may want to check that site out and do some calming activities if you can before you go in, even if you're slightly worried about it just to sort of like reduce your background level of anxiety, I think that might also help. All right. Thanks for that advice. How about uh, Kelly in Vancouver? What's on your mind about this? Uh, hi. I've, uh, I've had a paranoia about needles since I was grade seven. I have broken teeth from passing out uh, in my classroom. Um, but I just went and got my uh, COVID shot yesterday at the Italian Cultural Center, and they allowed me, there's a place in the back that you can go to lie down, and they were just fantastic. In fact, the, there was a doctor there, and he's an anesthesiologist, so that's all he does is needles, and it was unbelievable how easy and painless that it was, and it was just so non-traumatic. So I do recommend that. If people can, a lot of times if you lie down, then you won't pass out. So um, they will allow you to go and lie down if you ask, if you can go and have somewhere to lie down. Thanks for being with us. Earlier today, Justice Minister David Lametti actually praised a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Ronna Ambrose, for her work on the what eventually has led to Bill C-3. This is a government bill. But it owes its existence to Ronna Ambrose, the former member of Parliament for Sturgeon River Parkland and the former leader of the official opposition. I spoke to uh, Ms. Ambrose last evening and she was absolutely delighted with the passage of this bill. But like the rest of us, she recognizes the work that needs to be done moving forward. Ms. Ambrose's private member's bill, C-337, was the foundation for this legislation. The simple truth is that her bill should have passed two years ago. All right, that uh, some of the comments from David Lametti. This is a bill that requires prospective judges to undergo training in sexual assault law, and it has finally been adopted by the Senate, clearing the way for it to be officially added to the Federal Judges Act and the Criminal Code. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Kate Feeney, a West Coast LEAF Director of Litigation. Kate, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Jill, for having me on. What do you think the importance is of this bill and now, uh, as mentioned, clearing the way that this uh, to be added to the Federal Judges Act and the Criminal Code? Well, what's really interesting about this bill is that it requires judges to get training in the social context which surrounds sexual assault law. Um, Like what West Coast Leaf knows um, from working with sexual assault survivors and other organizations who work with sexual assault survivors know this, is that... um, Despite Canada having quite progressive sexual assault laws, 
um, which are aimed at eliminating myths and stereotypes about sexual assault from legal processes. On the ground, these myths and stereotypes continue to, um, frankly, poison the justice system and create unfairness for sexual assault complainants. And these myths and stereotypes at a really high level are about the archetype of the ideal victim, how she would act before, during, and after a sexual assault. Um, And that also interacts with other forms of prejudice in society, such as racism and ableism and classism, um, to discredit sexual assault survivors and really reinforce the disadvantages that they're already experiencing. Uh, there was a case a few years ago that uh, got international attention talking uh, about an Alberta federal court judge uh, who uh, re- ended up resigning, which I think a lot of people uh, would agree was appropriate. Uh, but because of comments made asking a sexual assault complainant in the court why she couldn't keep her knees together, uh, that seems like an extreme case. But is that the kind of thing we're talking about that education and, and more education uh, could hopefully stop something like that from happening? Um, Definitely. I think that um, the idea that there are a few bad apple judges out there really um, distorts what's true, which is that these myths and stereotypes are quite pervasive in the justice system, and perhaps they don't reveal themselves as clearly as in that case. Um, But judges are ultimately products of our larger society where gender bias as well as uh, systemic racism and discrimination are at play. Um, And on top of that, they're coming from usually the most privileged echelons of our society. And and despite some important work by the federal government in making new or ensuring that new judges um, are coming from more diverse backgrounds, judges still tend to... Uh, be largely white and male and, um, you know, coming from more privileged class backgrounds. So they, 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 they bring with them um, discriminatory attitudes that exist at society at large, and that's what this training can help to address. Uh, do you think, too, that uh, the issue, is it, is it, New judges that you think need this the most, or is it something that goes then to, to currently sit, judges that are sitting, no matter how long they've been sitting as well, that, it, that it's necessary to have this type of training and to continue having this type of training? Yes, I think that ultimately this training needs to be extended to all judges. Um, and on top of that, really, all legal professionals that are working in this area of law, because um, Beyond, beyond the judges who are interpreting and applying the law, you also have, um, like in the criminal justice system, you have the prosecutors and the defense lawyers um, who may not understand on a deep level what these myths and stereotypes are and how they might be affecting um, everybody's decision making within the trial process. Do you think that in the case of sexual assault trials and sexual assault cases, why is it, do you think, that particular uh, that particular section of the law is where we're seeing this need or this void of of really knowing the law and knowing what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in some cases? I mean, sexual assault is an overwhelmingly gendered offense. Um, It disproportionately affects women and other people who experience gender-based discrimination, and um, it 
it's also experienced at really high rates by by people who um, are experiencing other forms of marginalization within society because it's it's there's pow- power is at play within sexual assault. So I think because of that, um, it's just very susceptible to to discriminatory attitudes. Um, around, let's say, the credibility of the sexual assault survivor. You know, who do we believe? Who's that ideal victim? And, and you know, what do we, what do we expect of her? Um, you know, how would a real victim act? And, you know, when those com- what we might think are common sense judgments are often influenced by um, deeper, deeper biases. Uh, do you think this will have an impact or change the number of, of women? And like you said, for the, the majority of sexual assault victims are women. Uh, will it change the, the confidence level, do you think, of people coming forward and and uh, uh, reporting sexual assault? Because there's still that idea that even if you do get to the point where you're going to trial, uh, if you have to testify, even if the judge, you're confident that the judge is now uh, fully up to speed on sexual assault law and and has a better understanding of it, you're still going to face very uh, invasive questions by the prosecution. You're still going to have to be there with that spotlight on you. Is there still going to be that reluctance to, to put yourself out there? Yeah, I think this is only one, this is an important step, but it's only one step toward giving survivors confidence in the legal system. Right now, there's a profound lack of confidence as evidenced by the very small numbers of, of um, survivors who report um, their sexual assaults. And ultimately, like you said, um, it's going to require bigger systemic changes to how all of the actors within the legal system um, understand the law and, and, and use the law. And, you know, so 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 yes it's it's a meaningful step but it's only it's only one step and I'm I don't think on its own it's necessarily going to um, restore confidence in the justice system. Uh, the Justice Minister, David Lametti, uh, played a bit of his comments uh, right off the top, uh, saying that this should have happened a couple of years ago, uh, saying uh, thanking Rana Ambrose for bringing it forward as a private member's bill at, at the time. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that it has taken so long to get this to this point? It's certainly disappointing, but I think um, for me, I'm just focusing on um, what's ahead and uh, I understand that um, there will be consultations with um, groups that work with sexual assault survivors and, and survivors themselves on creating this training. And I, I hope that that's meaningful consultation that, that can result in um, training that makes a real difference. Uh, one of the lines in this as well that says that this also amends the criminal code and it brings in a requirement for judges to put their reasons for decisions in sexual assault proceedings on the record. I, I didn't realize that that wasn't already happening in that. Are they different from other cases when you have the reasons for judgment? It doesn't have to be included there? Um, I would say generally it's not always a requirement to have written reasons for judgment, but in sexual assault law where myths and stereotypes are so pervasive, it's 
it's very important to be able to have those reasons to um, so that these decisions aren't taking place in the shadows and they can receive um, scrutiny and there can be accountability. All right, uh, Kate Feeney, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you.